I just want to take a second to talk about how special our nutrition program is. The food that we create here at Sakara is designed to transform your gut and your microbiome health. And when you do that, you change everything about who you are. You change your mental health, you change your physical health, you change your spiritual health, you change your cellular health. When I'm out in the world, people will say, I love Sakara. And, you know, it's either the person who is on it every single day that I meet, or it's the person who, you know, I've tried your metabolism powder, but I just haven't been able to try the food program. And I always remind them that you don't have to be on this food program every single day. But if you come once a month for three days or once a year for one of our 30-day resets or once a year for five days in January, if that's all you can do, what it does is it transforms your gut, not just in the moment that you're eating the food, but in weeks and months after. It trains your gut to change the cravings you have, to change your metabolism, It transforms the strains of bacteria in your gut that inform your health for months to come. That diversity of ingredients that you're getting into your body changes the diversity of bacteria in your gut, which is the epicenter of your health. And it supports your total body health, your immune system, your metabolism, your skin clarity and skin health and how you age. And so I want to invite you, if you haven't tried Saqqara before, you don't need to do this whole big shebang, clear your week and, and your schedule to do it. Figure out what is holding you back from giving yourself this gift, giving this, yourself this step on your path to taking really good care of yourself. You deserve to feel good. You deserve to feel nourished in your body. And we are here to help you do that. And wait, we just have to say the one thing we always forget to say. Oh, yeah. It's really, really delicious. We <laughs> always talk about how it'll transform your body and your health and your microbiome. But man, our chefs are talented. It's delivered to your door, ready to eat. And it is so delicious. And that, by the way, is part of the nutrition because you should enjoy the path to creating a body you feel good in. It should not feel like you're depriving yourself. I literally just ate chocolate, banana, granola. I had a cookies and cream parfait. I was actually thinking when I was pouring the milk this morning, I was like, I can't believe I used to think I had to deprive myself to have a body I felt good and to have a body I felt sexy in. That's been the biggest change for me. Mm. So that's our wish for all of you, is to give you the food that helps you feel good and sexy. You can find more details and how to customize your own plan on Saqqara.com and enjoy 20% off your first order of our Saqqara Signature Nutrition Program with code POD. That's code P-O-D at checkout for 20% off your first order. Order now. We at Sakara believe that deepening our connection to our bodies is a key first step to nourishing our health for life, which is why we're so excited to speak with today's guest, Dr. Mindy Peltz. Dr. Mindy Peltz is a fasting expert and author of best-selling books, The Reset Factor, The Menopause Reset, and The Reset Kitchen, and her newly released Fast Like a Girl. 
She's an expert in educating women about their bodies, holds a BA in kinesiology and nutrition, and a doctorate in chiropractic medicine. Dr. Mindy has helped thousands reset their health over nearly 30-year practice, empowering them to take control of their well-being through fasting for hormonal balance. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Dr. Mindy Peltz on the distinct influence women's hormones have on our health, the importance of cultivating body intelligence and syncing our habits to our hormonal cycles and how health and lives can transform when we do. Well, Dr. Mindy, we are so excited to have you on the Sakara Life podcast. Welcome. Thank you. We like to start off every podcast with the same question, which is, what is your mission here on earth? Oh, my mission on earth. So yeah. you didn't tell me that part in the beginning. <laughs> we, we sneak that in. <laughs> yeah, right? Surprise. So I'm going to go really deep very quickly here. Great. Um, I actually have thought a lot about my mission, my purpose, why I'm here in this world. I had a actual near-death experience in my early 30s that really forced me to contemplate why I'm still here. And one of the things that I came up with is that... I'm really, truly here to inspire people. But more importantly, I really want to help people believe in their bodies again. And that has gone from helping people, which I did in my clinical practice, to now really helping women. And the reason that I'm focusing in on women is twofold. One is that I am a woman and I am a menopausal woman going through this menopausal experience and we need to start talking more about hormones. We need to start talking more about the ups and downs of the emotions that happen to us hormonally of all ages. But more importantly, women have really been left out of the healthcare conversation. We have been given a one-size-fits-all approach in a patriarchal healthcare system that isn't taking our female hormones into consideration. So my mission has now become, let's start to teach women hormone literacy and what does it look like to build a lifestyle that matches your hormones? And that has truly become my most current mission. And so important because, I mean, we hear it from client after client and then also just personally friend after friend, humans with vulvas. It's like they go into the medical system and it's like their body's a mystery yep. even to yep. their health professional. Okay, so to that point, I really want to comment on that because... I've been out talking since the Fast Like a Girl came out. I've been out talking to doctors, practitioners, health influencers of all kind. It is shocking. It is shocking how people that are leading the health movement do not understand hormones. I was recently at a conference of over 2,000 doctors. I was speaking on hormone literacy, and I asked 2,000 doctors of all backgrounds, how many of you feel like you have a good stance, like you have a good set of knowledge around hormones? Two of them. Two out mm. of 2,000 raised their hands. They were both women, so let's put, point that out. But what is so disturbing to me is that, A, as women, we don't understand our own selves. So that's the first thing. But B, the people that we're turning to for healthcare advice don't understand our hormonal needs. And that has to change. Yeah, and I think it's so important what you said about how women have been left out of kind of the, the medical conversation. That is not anecdotal. It's like actually true. Like when you go back to the research, I think it wasn't even until the 90s that it was required that women were included in studies before you could right. 
call it true. I mean, yeah. that's, that's yeah. the 90s. Like I was born in the 80s. So it's like when I was born, women didn't even have to be part of the scientific literature. Yeah. You know, it's so fascinating to me when we start to spout out all these studies because science has sort of become this hero in the recent healthcare movement yes. as we say, oh, but this study and that study and this study. Mm-hmm. Every single study, I go and look at the sample. And I'm like, what are we looking at? Are we comparing men to women? A classic example of that was a study came out about intermittent fasting like six months ago saying that intermittent fasting does not help you lose weight. And my brain is like, okay, this makes no sense because what I'm seeing is millions of people, both men and women, who are losing dramatic amount of weight doing intermittent fasting. So I dove into the sample size. The sample size was they had 17-year-old men and 60-year-old women and everything in between. So I can tell you as a 53-year-old woman, don't compare me to a 17-year-old man. I'm completely a different species because of my hormonal profile. So when we look at the research and this way that we highlight science, we have to start to dive into where are women being separated out and studied just in our own our own niche. You talk about hormonal hierarchy. Can you give our listeners kind of a one-on-one on hormonal hierarchy? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting part of the hormones conversation. So when we look at our sex hormones, estrogen, testosterone, and progesterone, when we're trying to change those, whether it's, you know, you're changing them with birth control, you're changing them with HRT or bioidenticals as women go through perimenopause and menopausal years, we forget that they are controlled by insulin. So PCOS is a great example of this. Most common female hormonal issue is PCOS. It's a high insulin, high toxicity issue. So when we look at trying to change things like the testosterone levels that are associated with PCOS, we can't just go at testosterone. We've got to be able to help insulin. We got to get the woman who has PCOS insulin sensitive first. That has to be the number one job. But here's the complicated part. I can teach you all the fasting in the world that will allow you to balance your hormones and give you every aspect of your health that you're looking for. But if cortisol is high, if your stress loads are so high, I don't care what fast I put you on. I don't care what diet I put you on. You are going to struggle to balance insulin. So cortisol affects insulin. And then above cortisol, this happens a lot. I don't know about you all, but when somebody tells me like, don't stress out, you got to slow your life down. I'm like, I don't know how to do that. I'm just passionate about what I'm doing. Just like you guys are passionate about what you're doing. There's a lot of great conversations to be had and a rushing woman lifestyle that I'm living. So I'm not sure I completely know how to regulate cortisol, but the hormone that regulates cortisol is oxytocin. Okay, so now let's break down oxytocin. We get oxytocin, we're getting it right now, chatting. The three of us are getting oxytocin in the connection we're having. Listeners are getting oxytocin as they feel heard, as they're listening to this podcast. When we're out at the grocery store and we smile at somebody and they smile back, we're getting oxytocin. You get it from petting your dog, you get it from hugs. All of that, all of the different ways we can get oxytocin is going to help us balance cortisol. Now, when we balance cortisol, we can start to regulate insulin. Now, when insulin starts to regulate, 
now we have a door into the sex hormones. So we have to take this hierarchy into consideration. We can't just go right at sex hormones and try to fix those first. I love that because it really is the proof that your mental wellness and overall whole body mind wellness, which I think are terms that have unfortunately been kind of butchered over the past 10 years or overused, but it really is so true. Like you have to start with your mind and your breath and then you get to start using all those tools that you're talking about. In this weird meta way, it's like so feminine. It's such a feminine approach. But that's what we should be doing. I mean, (laughs) one of the things I've been saying lately is, why aren't we bringing the feminine into this masculine-driven healthcare system? And the feminine would look like you have a symptom that's showing up that appears to be a hormonal, a sex hormone issue, like PCOS. And your doctor would say, okay, well, we know that insulin imbalances is going to contribute to PCOS. So let's work on getting you the right diet. Let's get you fasting. Let's help you balance insulin. But in balancing insulin, we need to also regulate cortisol. So you're going to need to make sure that you're prioritizing your connections with other humans, that you're getting enough hugs, that you're putting yourself in environments that is filled with kindness and love and compassion. That is what a feminine-driven healthcare system would look like, is taking that whole hierarchy into consideration to solve a hormonal challenge like PCOS. Yeah, I think about for so many years, I had a skin problem, so I went to go see a dermatologist. Turns out it wasn't a skin problem. It was a gut body, a whole body, whole system and mind problem that was manifesting on my face. And I think now the medical system is starting to come into a place where they're realizing that every system is connected and that if you tweak one area, it's going to affect another area of the body. But I think this mind piece is just starting to come in. And right now there is not a lot of medicine around how to create more joy in your life Mm. that will have that trickle-down effect. But I love what you're saying, like, go out and get more hugs. Yeah, pet more dogs. Like a prescription for hugs. Right? Wouldn't that be amazing? Let's take the type A woman who that is just head down, working all day, and then at night she comes home and is taking care of her family, and she's just trying to do her best. She doesn't have time for herself. She's not making maybe time for her friendships. She's just in that go, go, go mode. Does she understand the hormonal power of just taking a moment to take a break and reconnect with relationships that mean the most to her. And if we prioritize that, we would see such a dramatic shift in hormones. But, you know, here in America, we are very type A driven success. You know, what car you drive, how much money you have, how many downloads your podcast gets, how many social media follows you have, that is highlighted as the hero. But really, we're going to start to heal women when we start to bring back the healing power of a hug, the healing power of going out with a friend, the healing power of making these connections and community a priority. There's not enough conversation about it. Yeah, I think it's one of the ways mothers get through having children. I mean, I have not slept that well in the last four and a half years with two kids, (laughs) but I can recognize these moments that 
I could either like go down the path. I just had one last night where, you know, my son just wanted to feed all night. And I had this moment where I was like, I started to get stressed. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to cuddle him and kiss him. If I can't sleep, I'm going to get that oxytocin at least. And now that we're having this conversation, it makes so much sense. It's like, that's kind of my antidote to the lack of sleep. Obviously, it's not a long-term solution. But yeah, (laughs) like getting that, that oxytocin is so important. I've done that, like, when I can't fall asleep and my dog jumps on my bed, I'll just start to pet the dog and knowing specifically that it's giving me oxytocin or I'll just put my hand on the dog or I have a new thing with my husband when he gets into bed because he comes after me. I'm like, I just need to touch your skin. Like, Mm -hmm. I just need to touch you because it gives me oxytocin so that I can actually now fall asleep. But again, do we stop and prioritize that or talk about that at all as a healthcare solution? Yeah. So let's assume in this ideal world that we're working on our oxytocin and our cortisol, which I know you mentioned in your book, women are particularly sensitive, like the sensitive beings we are more sensitive to stressful situations and high cortisol. But let's assume we're we're working on that. The next kind of level in the hierarchy is starting to work on the sex hormones. And one of your tools you talk about is fasting. So let's start to dig in. How do you define a fast and why does it have to be different for women versus men? Because I hear all the biohackers talking and they're all men and, you know, they look great for them, but I don't want to look like them. I want to, you know, be the feminine version, but I don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Amen to that. You know, that's really why I wrote Fast Like a Girl is we had plenty of fasting books, but they're all written by men. There was very little put out about women. And what I was seeing in my world, and not only in my clinic, but on YouTube, was I was just really seeing that women needed to fast different. And here is why. This is the easiest way to understand this. So men have one sex hormone that drives them, and it's testosterone. And it comes in every 15 minutes. So you know the joke of like, if you don't like what your husband said to you, just wait 15 minutes because he might say something different in 15 minutes. Give him a little testosterone. I have not heard that. I'm going to use that. Yeah. Yeah, I heard that. Like literally just hang tight because he might in 15 minutes have a different response to you. So because he's getting that pulse of testosterone so consistently, testosterone in a man will go up and convert into estrogen into the brain. So he literally only has one hormone to focus on. The studies on testosterone and fasting are incredible. A man can raise his testosterone by like 2,000% just from a 24-hour fast. My general rule is men, if you are not fasting, you're crazy. You're crazy. Why would you not fast? You can get this real testosterone upside. Now, women, we're much different. We're completely different in the sense that we have three sex hormones we have to focus on. So we have to focus on estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone. And all three of those are made in the outer cells. We call them the fecal cells of our ovaries. And they are communicating up to our brain. There's this constant feedback loop that's happening all the time to orchestrate these three hormones throughout our 28, 30-day cycle. Well, when we break these three hormones down, testosterone, okay, we don't have a lot of studies on women and fasting and hormones, but we know that testosterone in general is going to be improved by fasting. So... A woman can fast when testosterone is coming in, and we can talk about that in a moment. 
We also know that estrogen likes to be insulin sensitive. It needs your carb load to be low. It does well when you fast. You're going to really let estrogen shine. She also is very cortisol resilient. So if you have a lot of stress when estrogen is coming in, you're not going to see much of a change in estrogen. She can handle a lot of stress. Her only requirement is keep glucose low, keep insulin low. Now, progesterone, she's completely different than estrogen. The way I like to look at the two is they're like twin sisters that are may look the same. We call them the same thing, but they have vastly different personalities. Progesterone actually needs glucose to be higher. So let's break this down for a second. Progesterone comes in the week before our periods. What do we all do as women the week before our periods? We're like, I want more carbs. I am so hungry. I want chocolate. Well, chocolate has magnesium in it, and you need magnesium for progesterone. So progesterone needs glucose to be higher, needs more magnesium to be up. It does not want you to fast. She does not want you to go low carb. So you've got to start to feed her what she needs so she can make her appearance. The other thing that progesterone needs is she needs cortisol to be low. So horrible time to fast is that week before your period. It's the worst time to fast. So what can we do to keep your stress down, your glucose high the week before your period? And then once your period starts, okay, now we're catering to estrogen again. So we're complicated. And we have to look at these sex hormones from different lenses when it comes to our lifestyle. And how do you define a fast? The clinical definition of it is eight hours without food. So within eight hours without food, your blood sugar starts to come down and your body starts to switch over into a different energy system. And that energy system is called the ketogenic energy system or the fat-burning energy system. So you need at least eight hours without a spike in your glucose, which is typically just don't eat, and you'll start to make that switch. But the benefits of fasting really don't kick in until about 12 hours. So you go into this fasted state, you make this metabolic switch in about eight hours. It takes you about four hours to really click into the fat-burning ketogenic energy system. Now you're in a totally different healing state. So it's not as easy to just say it's this time period. It's actually you're making this metabolic switch and you're doing it by bringing your blood sugar down. And I know you get into this in your book, but like a 101, how do women start to figure out what kind of fasting window is right for them? Yeah. If you haven't fasted, I really encourage women to just start to get to know 13 hours, 14 hours, 15 hours of fasting. The greatest study ever done on women and fasting is at 13 hours. They found that women coming out of breast cancer, traditional breast cancer treatment, that if all they did is fast 13 hours every day, they had a 64% less reoccurrence of breast cancer, which is crazy. And that was done on thousands of women. So when we look as women at what we need our first fasting ledge, let's get to 13 hours. You might not have breast cancer, but I'm hoping everybody wants to prevent breast cancer. So why don't we use a 13-hour fast as a tool to do that? I feel like if you've never fasted, that's your door in is to train yourself to get to that 13-hour mark. 
And then who is fasting right for? Who should be fasting? Is it right for all women or just certain women? I would say for all women, for sure. But let me go back one step. We are designed to fast as humans. So this is men and women. And when you break that down, I hear a lot of people say, oh, I can't fast or my genetics don't let me fast. I call a little bit of bullshit on that because what we know about the human body is that it thrives in a fasted state. So when we go back and we look at our primal ancestors, we know that they didn't walk out like of the cave and have a refrigerator. They didn't have DoorDash. They had to go hunt for food. They had to tap into this ketogenic energy system in order to have the energy and the mental focus to go hunt for food. And both men and women went and hunted for food. I wrote about this in the book that there's a belief that actually the genetic profile that emerged out of those years is something called the thrifty gene hypothesis. And that is the genetic profile that lives in most of us today. So if we're not fasting, we're actually moving against our genes. The second thing on that is that even though we're designed to fast, it doesn't mean, especially in the female category, that we're all supposed to fast. So to answer your question specifically, one of my times that I say absolutely not is pregnancy. That is not your tool. You should be focusing on your microbiome, which you gals do so well. You're going to pass your microbiome down to your children. So when you're pregnant, let's focus on the microbiome so you're handing a very diverse microbiome down to your children. Nursing mothers, I don't want them fasting longer than 15 hours because you don't want to stimulate something called autophagy, which creates a bit of a detox reaction. That detox is going to force those toxins to go into your breast milk, and that's going to go into your child. And then the third category that I think doesn't get enough attention is the eating disorder category. I've had a lot of people kind of come at me from that community and say, like, you're advocating for more dysfunction with as far as women's relationship to food. What I've seen with women is as they learn to fast like a girl, the way I teach cycling of fasting, they find a new appreciation and rhythm for their body that they never had before, and it changes their relationship to food. But if you have a history of an eating disorder, if you're going to embark upon a fasting lifestyle, you absolutely need to make sure that your doctor is working with you so that you don't trigger any old traumatic behaviors. So are you saying that fasting every day, assuming you're matching your cycle and you're not doing it the week before your period, is that like an everyday occurrence for you? Is that what you recommend? Like you, you do that 15 to 17 hour every day or how often? To make it easy for everybody, let's think about stages. So first stage is just learn how to switch over into the fat burning system. Learn how to fast at 13 hours. Just, just start there, get kind of comfortable with that. Maybe do that for a month or two. After you do that, then I encourage women specifically to start to fast according to their menstrual cycle. So this is actually speaking specifically to women who have a cycle. Postmenopausal women are a different topic. But if you have a cycle, whenever estrogen is coming in, day one through day 10 of your cycle, you are building estrogen. You can do any length fast. So in the book, I give you six different lengths. 
anything from 13 hours up to 72 hours. Any length is great, whatever feels comfortable. Each length has a different healing effect. So it's really what your intention is. Then when you move into ovulation, we've got this ovulation so fascinating to me. And I, and I wish when I was moving into menopause as a 53-year-old woman, I wish I'd known this at 33. And that is that when we go into ovulation, estrogen is at her peak and testosterone is at her peak. And we have a little bit of progesterone. So this is a really unique time. One, we are at our hormonal best. Estrogen makes us very mentally clear. We're great verbal processors when estrogen is high. Testosterone not only gives us libido, but it gives us motivation and drive. So if we want to start a new project, great time to do it is during, during ovulation. And then progesterone give, makes us calm and lets us feel a little more relaxed. So during ovulation, you have all three of those hormones coming in. So you're going to want to keep your fast a little bit lower. You don't want to go above 15 hours. You want to focus a little more on your microbiome, which is like the work you guys are doing is really interesting because we need our gut bacteria to break these hormones down. We have a whole set of bacteria called the estrobilome that breaks estrogen down. A great time to focus on your microbiome is right at that ovulation window when all these hormones are coming in. And then when we move out of that, out of ovulation, we have about a four-day window where our hormones come down. We can fast long again. We can go keto again. It's a great time to, if you want to lose weight, focus on that after ovulation. Go into a little more of these extreme biohacks that we've been doing. And then the week before your period, about day 19 or 20, progesterone makes her glory. And you got to get glucose up. You got to start eating better nature's carbs like tropical fruits and citrus fruits and squashes and root vegetables and potatoes. All of those are going to help your body make progesterone. And we've got to keep cortisol down. And then the cycle starts all over again once we bleed. And what about fertility? I know a lot of women who struggle with fertility, they're told that they have an estrogen dominance. Can fasting help with that? Do you just have to eat more carbs to support progesterone to be less estrogen dominant? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, so it really depends. If you're estrogen dominant, the first thing we have to look at when we look at estrogen, and I feel like Estrogen dominance gets thrown around a lot, like as this sort of buzzword, but we don't really explain what that means. So estrogen breaks down into three different metabolites. One is protective, and we call that 2-OH is the easiest way. That's sort of how we look at it on a test. It also will break down into a toxic version of estrogen. So we call that 4-OH. That's what's going to build cancer. And then 16-OH is another, shows us how much of estrogen is being stored in our tissues. So the first thing you want to do is know, are you estrogen dominant perhaps because you have too much of the good? Like, if you go into your doctor's office and you run a blood test, are they giving you these metabolites? Because total estrogen or even estradiol, it's only giving you one part of the estrogen equation. So we got to look at what estrogen is breaking down into. And it may be as simple as it's not breaking down into enough of the healthy estrogen. So if that's the case, 
let's up your vegetables. Let's get you more prebiotic, probiotic, polyphenol foods. Let's get you on more of the flaxseed oils and, and get you more nuts and seeds. And what are you doing for your leafy green vegetables? Like, let's work on bringing that protective estrogen up. If your metabolite shows that you're not, you're storing a lot of estrogen, okay, well, that's a function of the liver. So let's get you off alcohol. Let's get you off some of these medications that you might not need that are making the liver sluggish. Let's lean into more of the bitter foods like radicchio and arugula and ginger so we can support the liver. It's not as easy as just saying, you have too much estrogen, do this. We really need to look at what it's breaking down into. And let's talk about menopausal, like hormonal system. I feel like there have been not enough, but some revolutions around even things like period pain, PCOS. I don't think people were talking about that the way they are now. There's been more talk around birth and what it means to have an empowered birth, miscarriage. And I feel like now we're coming into this time where people are more willing to talk about menopause and letting it be like this birthright and this, you know, beautiful experience because it's been marketed to us as this terrible hot flash instead of this rite of passage into the next chapter. So well said. I just want to start off and, and acknowledge that you hit the nail on the head. What's really interesting about menopause, perimenopause, is that it's actually happening at 35 now. It's happening younger and younger. So what happens is, your think of it like your ovaries are going into retirement. So you have so many eggs, and the eggs are diminishing. And so as the eggs diminish, then the hormones diminish. Around the age of 40 is when it should begin, it's happening a little bit sooner because of some environmental reasons and toxicity reasons. We're seeing it in 35-year-olds. But what will end up happening is your ovaries will go into retirement, and it's going to take 10 years for your hormones to start to wind down. But in that process of the hormones winding down, you're going to be on an emotional roller coaster that, if you're not prepared for it, is going to hit you really, really hard. And so let's get women prepared for it. Let's start talking about it. What can we do to prepare for it? Fasting is definitely one of those things because as estrogen goes down, you become more insulin resistant. So the diet that worked for you at 30, unfortunately, is not going to work as well for you at 40. And the diet that works for you at 40 may not work for you as well at 50 because you're becoming more and more insulin resistant as you lose more and more estrogen. So we got to go into more low carb. We also know as you are going through those years that you need your microbiome. If you've been on birth control for decades, if you have been on multiple rounds of antibiotics, that we've got to support the microbiome. At 45, your vegetable consumption means so much more than at 25. 
because you are missing these hormones. So your lifestyle has to adapt. And that's what I'm hoping when you talk about this conversation is opening up, that's where we can go with the conversation as opposed to just bitching about the symptoms. We could actually go to, okay, what's the lifestyle that we can build to accommodate these changes as we lose these hormones? I've been really getting into the science behind metabolism and which ingredients in our metabolism powder do exactly what for our metabolism. So just to set the stage, our metabolism powder has three key ingredients that do three key things. So one, fucosanthin is an algae-based ingredient. Essentially, it transforms your fat composition to something that is more metabolically active. So you're actually burning more energy with brown fat than you would white fat. Second, it has gymnema sylvester, which is an Ayurvedic herb that really helps curb sugar cravings by actually helping to balance your blood sugar throughout the day. And third, it has an ingredient called horsetail. This is a really special herb that helps pull unnecessary bloat from your cells, unnecessary water from your tissues while keeping your electrolyte balance. And I think what is amazing about how we designed the metabolism powder is that these are whole food ingredients. When it comes to like these whole food ingredients, they're gentle yet effective. You can find more details on sakara.com and enjoy 20% off your first 30-day pouch of our metabolism super powder with the code POD. That's sakara.com and promo code POD at checkout. So can you just kind of flesh out for me, do you mean traditionally low carb or do you mean stabilized blood sugar and not have those blood sugar spikes? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah, I love that. Thank you. I've never heard anybody say it that way. I love that. It's a good reframe. I'm a fan of low carb cycling, keto cycling for women. But ultimately, why are you doing that? And you're doing it to stabilize blood sugar. You definitely don't want blood sugar to be going up and down because that's when insulin gets out of control. And then as we open this up with, when insulin gets out of control, now we've got sex hormones out of control. I love what you said. Yes, I, I do mean stabilized blood sugar, but then we should probably unpack what that means. <laughs> yeah, it's complicated because I think low carb, I feel like then people villainize carbohydrates and like that's not the point either it's really learning like what are the foods that keep your blood sugar stable and i love what you talk about because learning how to fast learning how to eat for blood sugar when you're young like then you really have to lean into it as you get older so it's like you can use these tools but then you'll really have to like fully rely on these tools as we get older what are the biggest differences in how a woman with a cycle would fast between a woman going through menopause. And are you including perimenopause, like that 10-year decade also, or is it just postmenopausal? 
Yeah. This, so this is where it gets really complicated. And this is why we needed a whole book, right? Yeah. Is that, you know, that you can't just say women need to fast differently. We need to explain why a woman needs to fast differently or eat differently. But then we need to break down and say, okay, where is that woman along her hormonal trajectory? And to me, there's three different phases. There's when we have a regular cycle, and then there's perimenopause when we don't have a regular cycle. In fact, for a lot of perimenopausal women, we're going to see cycles that are 60 days in length, or we're going to see some cycles that are two weeks in length. So it's a really interesting time. And then postmenopause is where, you know, we are going to see that she's made it all the way to the other side, but she still has the lowest amount of hormones she's ever had and still needs to think about the differences between estrogen and progesterone. So when we look at those three categories of women, the menstruating woman probably could get away with less fasting if she's not into it, although... I'm about optimal health. And so I feel like if you want optimal health, that's what I really mapped out for women in Fast Like a Girl. Once you hit 40, I'm pretty clear you're crazy if you're not fasting or cycling in some low carb. You're just going to have to figure out how to do it when estrogen is being built and not when progesterone is being built. And that requires you getting to know your hormones a little bit better. I'll give you an example. A lot of perimenopausal women spot. So they'll have spotting, and then a week later, they'll get their period. When you start spotting, that's your body knocking on the door and saying, hey, we need more progesterone. We need more glucose. We need you to eat more so that we can make progesterone. So spotting is an indication that progesterone's trying to come in, and that's a clue that a menopausal woman or a perimenopausal woman can use. Hot flashes are a sign that estrogen is too low. So in that moment, when we're starting to get a lot of hot flashes, if our cycle's all over the place, we can lean into more longer fasts to balance that estrogen level out. So the perimenopausal woman has to really understand the personalities of these different hormones. And then postmenopausal, it's a little bit easier because you don't have a cycle to work with. So you can fast whenever, totally fine. You can go low carb whenever. But the difference between you and a man is you still have progesterone to think about and you need to make sure that you're bringing glucose up. So once or twice a week, get out a low carb. You know, once or twice a week, we don't want you fasting. We want you eating more of these root vegetables and tropical fruits is another great example. I know that was a lot, but that's the level of nuance between these three different types. Yeah, it's so interesting. And is there a world where women don't need to deal with PMS. Is that something that's innate to a human body with a cycle and a vulva? Are hot flashes innate to someone going through perimenopause? Or are these the tools you're talking about, things that can help us get out of those symptoms? Yes. So I'm super happy you asked me about PMS because, again, I feel like we need to just put the pause button. And when we look at PMS... You are not meant to struggle the week before your period. You're meant to slow down. You're meant to not work out as much. You're meant to not be engaged in stress as much. You're meant to have more carbs like we've talked about. 
When you are not honoring that, what's going to happen is you're going to have more PMS symptoms. So if you could just stop and realize that the body is talking to you, that PMS is not something that we just bitch about on ladies' night out. You know, PMS is your body saying, help me. It's progesterone saying, slow down. I need more fuel. I need cortisol to come down. And if you allow me to have those precursors, then I will show you that the week before your period can be very, very smooth. And when we go in our actual cycle and we're like cramping and we've got clots, which happens a lot to women in the perimenopausal years, what your body is saying to you is, hey, please make sure that you are more gentle with yourself the week before your period. So once you actually bleed, that you are going to find that you're going to have an easier time in those first couple of days. I don't know about you. I mean, I discovered this as I was moving through my 40s. And I wish I could go back to my 20-year-old self and tell her exactly what I just said to you all. It's like, we have not been taught how to live with these hormones. So these negative things appear. And then we give them fancy names like PMDD. Again, we didn't talk about PMDD when I was in my in my 20s and my 30s. Well, and even now, they're not necessarily talking about how to reverse it. It's still just like a symptom that comes with your cycle. And now we can name it. Yeah, yeah. we can name it and we can prescribe something for it, but not talking but about what is it telling you? You know, Thank all of you. these are messages. Yeah. yeah. They're all messages. I just want to highlight this because I want to end the suffering for women is that your body is talking to you. It is telling you what it needs. So don't fall into the trap of giving it a fancy name like PMDD. Like stop and honor this incredible vessel that you get to walk around and learn as much as you can about how to work with it. And all those crazy symptoms you have, the hormonal symptoms will go away. And that's the conversation I want to crack open. It's so important. We talk about it here at Scar. We call it body intelligence. Like we, we've Love so been taught to push feelings down, you know, not listen to cravings. I remember learning, you know, if you're craving chocolate, try this. And it's like, no, listen. Yeah. And but we're taught to like not do and how to curb cravings. Yeah. And you know, body intelligence is more attuned to what we're talking about than intuitive eating, because I think intuitive eating can sound really good. But with body intelligence, we're talking about cultivating and building a body that you get to listen to, that there are things that can intercept our hormones and can change our cravings in a way that might not be great. But when you build a body, you get to listen to, and then you listen, like that's really when you get to see the transformative effects. Yeah. Amen to that. Totally Amen. Agree with you. <laughs> you get a hallelujah on that. Hallelujah. Yeah. And I think I really want to get to this concept. You touched on it earlier, but I didn't want to diverge because we were already on a fascinating track. But fasting does not mean less calories. Yes. And I think that's really important to talk about because when you have a smaller window for eating, you innately have to change your behavior and your relationship to food because you're eating more either at mealtime or you have more mealtimes. So first, 
Talk to us about why calorie in is not calorie out and depriving ourselves of food is not a method for for weight loss and hormonal health. Yeah. So when we go and look at the calorie in, calorie out theory, one of the things that happened, and you know who taught us this, and I give him a tremendous amount of credit because he started the whole fasting movement, was Jason Fung. And he wrote a book called The Obesity Code. And when The Obesity Code came out, what he said is that weight loss is a hormonal issue. It is not a calorie issue. And this is like, I don't know how old that book is, but it has to be over 10 years old. And this blew apart the whole weight loss movement. I think this is still so applicable for people to understand today. Let's say you bring in 1,000 calories a day. And you exercise, you get on the treadmill, and you're looking at that number of how many calories did you burn. You burned 500 calories, so you brought in 1,000. You burned 500. Now, hopefully, you bring in more than 1,000. Now, you've got this delta of 500 calories. So, in order for you to stay the same weight that you are or to lose weight, you always have to stay around this 500-calorie mark. You have to stay around 1,000 calories in and 500 calories out, and you have changed your set point. And if you veer from that, you're going to gain weight. And how many of us have done that where we go on a diet, we bring our calories down, we go and we work out, and we're like, boom, I love the body I'm living in. I feel amazing. And then we get derailed or we go on vacation and we gain weight. That is the whole story of why weight loss diets don't work. So when we switch over and we realize that insulin, its job is to store glucose. So it is going to take glucose, the food that you're eating, and it's going to push it into those cells. So its job is to push it in there. And if it can't do its job, then what it will do is store glucose somewhere else. And where it's going to store it is in fat. And I think this is really important because when we look in the mirror, especially as women, and we see the areas of fat, we have a whole story that starts in our head and all the guilt and all the shame, and I'm not disciplined enough, I'm not beautiful enough, I'm not enough shows up for women. It is a core root belief that so many women have. And what we're not realizing is that your brilliant body made a decision to put the extra glucose, it puts the extra hormones in fat to save your life. Because it's better to put it around your belly and the back of your arms and around the hips, all the places you don't want. It's putting there that as a protective mechanism. So let's focus on making you insulin sensitive. And in order to make you insulin sensitive, it doesn't matter your calories. It doesn't matter. And so That is the first part of that conversation. But then the other part of that conversation is when you go into a calorie deficit state, you are tanking your thyroid. Your thyroid needs more calories. So it makes no sense for women to put themselves in this rigid calorie deficit state because you may have a short-term result in your dieting, but now you have a long-term challenge with your thyroid hormones. Wait, I think I need to just hear this one more time. So you're saying it's the insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance that 
leads the body to hold on to the weight and push it into fat? Bingo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, what creates insulin resistance is you're continually spiking your blood sugar and spiking your blood sugar for long periods of time. Keeping it up there. And so that means the receptors on your cells are just getting inundated and they start to lose the sensitivity to that insulin response. Exactly. Exactly. Now, if we really want to go deeper, I don't want to confuse people even more, but... Let's go. Yeah, it's not just (laughs) blood sugar that causes insulin resistance. It's actually toxins as well. You can look up a concept called obesogens. That was on my list to ask you. Yeah, so obesogens, let's just start in the place that women are collecting obesogens. It's in our makeups. It's in what we're putting on our skin. When we are inundating our body with these obesogens, they block that insulin receptor site too. Let's go back to PCOS, and I'm not meaning to harp on PCOS, but it is the most common hormonal challenge for women. We've got an issue of insulin resistance mixed with an abundance of toxicity. Now her sex hormones are out, her cycle's off, and she's gaining weight. And her hair is falling out, or growing in new places, falling out in other places, and it's because of those two things. So it's complicated, but it's hitting women the hardest. I think connected to, but slightly different, you talk about in your book, this idea that you should be able to go long periods of time without food. And one of the potential indicators to insulin resistance is this need to constantly eat. Mm -hmm. Like people who have low blood sugar or complain of low blood sugar, even though maybe they're not medically diagnosed with that. I think that's so fascinating because there's this whole idea that, you know, if you see someone who's obese, it means they eat too much. And it's so complicated. It's so complicated. And the same thing with not being able to eat and being able to fast. It's so complicated. Like you really have to have a handle on your hormonal health. It's not just about stamina and I'm going to do this. But then also it is hard. So I guess the twofold question is, how do you get to that place where you can fast for those longer windows? And how do you know if you're actually dealing with hypoglycemia or it's more of like an emotional attachment to, oh, I should eat? Because I think you were talking about our ancestors and our kind of evolutionary changes throughout time and the need for fasting. Mm -hmm. But then on the opposite side of that coin, we also have the need to search for food and it has to be a really strong desire. So yeah, I don't even know if that was a question, but more just like... (laughs) No, I'm right here with you. I'm like, I mean, one of the things that we've got to really get back to is unpacking something like obesity. So when we see somebody who's obese, there's a tendency for us to go, you must be undisciplined. Mm -hmm. But we are living in a time where big food is creating food that is making you addicted to that food. So actually, somebody who is obese is actually incredibly nutrient deficient. They are not getting nutrients into their body, so they got to keep eating because their body's like, feed me more, feed me more, feed me more. The guilt and the shame is one of the biggest pieces I'm trying to take away from women. It's like you ate a bunch of food that was in your supermarket that you chose because it tasted good, you had no idea that it was leading you down a path of obesity and all these hormonal problems because it was in the supermarket. So isn't all the food in the supermarket safe? Yeah. Right. The answer is no. 
Yeah, and I think also people forget that hunger is a hormonal response. Like you have leptin in the same exact way that you're talking about insulin and blood sugar being this hormonal response. Your hunger signals are also a hormonal response. So the more your endocrinology is off, the more your hunger signals are off as well. Well, I even think about these obesogens in our environment. And every time you get into a ride share car vehicle, how many car air fresheners need to be hanging from a rear view mirror? Yeah, like, really. it's so yeah. bad. Or how about even just cleaning products? Yeah. Yep. And scented candles and everything it's else so all, all around us yep. in the environment. You yeah. know, you can do your best to buy clean products that you put on your skin and your laundry detergent and all of these things, yet we're just surrounded in our environment by obesogens all around us. And again, we're back at like, it's affecting women more because we're exposed to more of these toxins because of the beauty industry. And I'm not saying that, well, then we don't use all these beauty products and therefore we're just going to be ugly. I'm saying we need to get the beauty industry to change the obesogens just as badly as we need to get the food industry to pull the obesogens out and stop making us food addicted. But you bring up a really, uh, the Uber, whenever I get in an Uber and there's the driver isn't wearing cologne or perfume and there isn't a Christmas tree hanging from the rear view mirror, air freshener, I literally thank them. I yeah, say, no. I thank you so I much. I always for, educate my drivers. Yeah, I'm like, you can't, yes. I'm worried about you. You're driving around in this for hours upon hours. Such a good point. Throughout the day. Yeah. I want to ask a selfish question. For my breastfeeding mamas out there, because both Whitney and I are breastfeeding. Awesome. So we can't go past 15 hours. Is there anything else we can do to continue to keep our hand on the wheel of our hormones? Yeah. I mean, you guys are already doing it. It really comes down to gut health and, and liver health. So intermittent fasting will be great. And I would tell you at that 15-hour mark, you can still, in the book, I have something called the 30-day fasting reset. And the beginner version actually would work well for a nursing mom. So, and it'll show you how to cycle accordingly. Yeah. I was going to ask, which hours are those 15 hours? Is it You know, you're sleeping for hopefully eight hours or so. And then is it morning hours or is it before you go to bed hours or split the hours? Do you have a recommendation? Use your sleep. Hopefully you're getting some sleep. So use your sleep as part of it. Yeah, I know. (laughs) I don't know how old your kids are, but I remember when my kids were that age. Sleep is not... Consistent sleep is a luxury. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you got eight hours, which probably not getting eight hours, you would use your your sleep. So you finish dinner at eight, eight to midnight, four hours. Then you would eat again at like 10 or 11 in the morning, which is pretty doable. Totally doable. And is that something you can even do during your progesterone week? No. So your progesterone week, 12 hours. No more than 12 hours. And maybe even, you know, no fasting. You can wake up. Just eat whenever you're hungry. Yeah, just eat whenever. Yeah. And there are a lot of people out there talking about you can have coffee, you can have, there are things that you can have that don't break your fast. Is that true? You can have coffee. Can you have coffee with milk? So here, we're back at the microbiome. You know, it's your gut bacteria that are going to control your blood sugar. So if you have a diverse 
amount of bacteria, you're going to have a really good set of microbes that will help you regulate the food that comes in much better. I find in women that haven't been on birth control for decades, they haven't had 18, 20 rounds of antibiotics like a lot of women have, that they actually are able to put cream in their coffee and they're fine. But if we have had a lot of destruction to the microbiome, something as simple as a cup of coffee, especially with cream in it, is going to affect you. So in the book, I talk about a blood sugar test where you can just take your blood sugar, drink your favorite cup of coffee, take another reading like a half an hour later, and then let's compare. Those two readings should be very similar. If the second reading's high, it took you out of a fasted state. I know a lot of people recommend coffee to extend your fast, but my son has type 1 diabetes, and in the diabetes community, people talk about how a cup of coffee can spike their blood sugar. So I think that that's a great way to find out about yourself, just to test yourself. Absolutely. I've worked with a patient one time. She was in her late 20s, and a glass of water spiked her blood sugar. Wow. Her gut was in such bad shape that just putting water in her mouth, we saw a glucose spike. So this is why it's, that is like the million dollar question everybody wants to know is like, what about coffee? What about tea? What about mineral water? I can give you generalizations, but I don't know your microbiome. So it's really, you got to test it for yourself. What should our fasting glucose be? Mm, That's a good question. I like it between 70 and 90. I think that is really a good safe place for it to be. And if it's higher, does that indicate insulin resistance? That's a really good question because what I see with a lot of women is it hovers around 100. Now, I want to point out that it also depends on where you are in your cycle. So if you are the week before your period and you're looking at your fasting glucose, it's going to naturally be higher. Because progesterone, you're more insulin resistant the week before your cycle. So your body is making glucose rise. So know where you are in your cycle. Mm. That's crazy important. The other part of that conversation that I think needs to be had is when you eat a meal, how quickly does it come down? So within two hours, healthy, normal blood sugar, you should come back to your pre-meal state. But I'm going to say optimally, do you come back within a half hour to an hour? Does that blood sugar come right back to where it was before the meal you ate? For my own self, that's what I look at when I put like a continuous glucose monitor on me. I'm looking at every meal I'm eating and I'm trying to see how quickly my blood sugar is recovering. And if it comes down back to its pre-meal state within a half an hour, I know my microbiome is good. I know the meal was good. And I know that I'm insulin sensitive. So good. I feel like we could talk for another hour. Thank you so much. So as you know, we like to give our listeners some light work, some homework that can help all of us shine our brightest lights. So what comes to mind? I feel like you mentioned many things, but if you had to pick one. Well, I mean, it kind of cycles back to what we talked about in the beginning of this conversation. I really want to encourage women specifically to start by stop telling yourself so many horrible things. 
Stop comparing yourself to other women. Stop looking in the mirror and and identifying the parts of your body that you don't like. Can you look in the mirror and identify the parts of the body that you do like? And it may be something like your hair looks great that day. Find that body part and every time you look in the mirror, just accentuate your gratitude for that body part. And we have to take this rhetoric that's going on in our brain constantly, and we've got to start to talk to ourselves better first. The second part of that is a real mission that I have, and maybe this has just come in the wisdom of 53 years, is that as women, can we collaborate together? Can we stop competing with each other? Can we stop comparing? Can we stop talking negative about another woman? It is a time for us to come together as women in all of our differences and be loving and accepting and kind to each other. Instead of us sitting over here and saying, you know, we live in a patriarchal world, men are not understanding us, research studies are not being done on us. Yes, that does exist. But what are we doing as women treating women? How are we coming together? How are you talking about another woman? Because kindness matters for our hormones. And when we are bitching either to the mirror, to ourselves, to another woman, we are taking ourselves out of hormonal balance and we are doing more damage to our own hormones than we even have any indication or any insight that we are doing. So I am here to let us all just be completely in love with our own female body and also to turn around and show that love to other women. Love that so much, Dr. Mindy. It was beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the work you've done and continue to do to help all of us female women, bodies with vulvas get to know our biology. It's it's a gift. So thank mm. you. Oh, thank you. And thank you gals for doing what you're doing. Again, we're more powerful together and you're going right at that microbiome, which is Ah, that is so, that is so important. That is so important. Thank you. 